we noted last night, the Antichrist, though not specifically mentioned by that term in the book of Revelation, is actually talked about a great deal in the book of Revelation. Bible prophecy has a tremendous amount to say about the Antichrist power. So though it doesn't employ the specific term, don't for a moment think that it doesn't say anything about it. There's a great deal said about the Antichrist, and we're going to study it out a bit tonight. But again, the burden of our message last night was to clear away the cobweb so we could see clearly what the Antichrist isn't. So whatever preconceptions, whatever ideas might have been there, kind of wash those away in the light of God's Word, and now let's open our minds to what it is. Okay? Laying the foundation from last evening, we want to build on that in study guide number seven, Antichrist Evidence part two. But before we dive into any study, no matter how superficial or how deep, we want to always begin with a word of prayer. So let's bow our heads at this time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you that you give us the opportunity to come together safely, that you give us this place and the freedom to discuss these things. And Lord, that you give us your word. You could have not told us anything at all, but you gave us, sent us the prophets. You wrote the scripture for it. You sent your only son that we may know you. Lord, help us to take you up on that opportunity and help us to understand who you are and the deceptions that we have to face in these last days. Bless our minds tonight that may we see your truth clearly, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us go into our Bibles to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, as we begin tonight. Now, the reason we go to Daniel, and we'll be going there often, is that Daniel is an end-time prophecy book, just like the book of Revelation, except it's the Old Testament version. And you'll find, as we continue these studies, that as we mentioned the first night, the book of Revelation is the very last book in the Bible, and it assumes that you've read all the other books that come before it. It makes reference to biblical terms and plots and characters that you wouldn't be aware of if you hadn't been familiar with the scripture that comes before it. Okay? Well, prophetically, the book of Revelation has an Old Testament partner, if you will, and that's the book of Daniel. Daniel and Revelation fit together like hand in glove. In fact, there are places you're going to see as we continue our study where the book of Daniel walks right up to a point and stops, and then the book of Revelation comes up and takes the baton from there and just continues the thought. Daniel and Revelation go together like hand and glove. And in Daniel chapter 2, this goes all the way back to our first night together, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And you remember the story he couldn't recall the dream, it's particularly its interpretation, but he knew it was an important dream, and he called in his magicians and astrologers and all the wise men, quote-unquote, of that day and age, but they were unable to answer him. But Daniel, who the Lord had blessed with the gift of prophecy, the ability to translate and interpret these dreams and visions, was called in, the Lord gave him this vision, gave him the interpretation, and he declared it before the king. And what he explained to the king was what we find in Daniel chapter 2. And we'll begin with verse, well, we don't have to read through all the verses, but we'll go down to the interpretation. If you recall, in verse, we'll start with verse 36. 
The dream that he had looked like the image that's there on your worksheet. On the, on the, on the left side, Daniel 2, it was the image of a man. A great statue, a man, but composed of different metals for different body parts. For instance, the head was made of particular materials. Does anyone recall what it was? Gold. Head of gold. The chest and arms were made out of silver. The belly and thighs were made out of bronze or brass. The legs were made out of iron. And the feet also were made out of iron, but also iron mixed with clay. Right. So you had this statue which basically outlined four, not just a man's body parts, but kingdoms or empires that would rule the then-known world. The first one, of course, was the kingdom of Babylon. Let's pick it up in verse 36. This is the dream, Daniel confidently declares. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this what? Head of gold. Speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of what empire? Babylon. And it's clear that he's talking about the entire kingdom of Babylon and not just the individual because we just keep reading. But after you shall arise another what? Kingdom. After you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, much like silver is inferior to gold. You notice the value decreases, but the strength increases. Then another, he says, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then he moves in to the fourth kingdom. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, And like iron that crushes that kingdom, that fourth kingdom, will break in pieces and crush all the others. Then he moves in to the next phase of that kingdom, where it divides into iron mixed with clay. Verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom, now we're still talking about the fourth kingdom, yes? The iron kingdom, the kingdom shall be what? Divided. Notice it's not overthrown. It's not a new kingdom coming along. It's the same kingdom, but now it's in a phase of division, right? Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. It's still the iron kingdom, but just now divided and mixed with clay. And as you saw the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom, still that fourth kingdom, now in its divided phase, shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, he's basically just walked through this statue. Babylon is the head of gold. The Medes and Persians came together to make the Medo-Persian Empire. That was the chest and arms of silver. Greece was that belly and thighs of bronze or brass. And what was that fourth kingdom that was the legs of iron? Rome. So you have a sequence of four empires. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then what? Rome. But Rome 
is not just the legs, it extends, the iron of Rome extends into the feet and toes, yes? He says it's still iron, still the strength, still the kingdom, but now he talks about it in a divided phase. Now, as we review what we just saw, look back at the passage. Which empire does the interpretation focus on the most? Does it spend the most time explaining the head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, or that feet of iron and clay? Where's the interpretation emphasis? Feet. You notice, he says, you, O king of the... And he starts talking to him. He's there directly. You, O king of the king of kings, and this is the head of gold. But notice the next thing after that. Look at verse 39. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule of the other. One verse, he covers two whole kingdoms. Anyway, there's another one, and then another one. Obviously, that's not the main point. Then he gets down to the fourth kingdom, gives a whole verse just for that in verse 40, and talks a lot more about it. But he spends multiple verses on the time of the feet and the toes. The focus is on the lower end of the statue, particularly the fourth beast, or I mean, not the fourth beast, the fourth kingdom, and and particularly the end of that kingdom, the divided time of the feet and the toes. Is everyone with me so far? Okay. Good, good, good. Now, and of course, the, the end of the dream was not just a statue, but what happens at the end of the dream? A rock is cut out without human hands and comes in and smashes the kingdoms on the feet and toes, and everything, the whole statue then comes crumbling down, becomes dust, and it blows away, and the rock that struck it becomes a great mountain And that rock and that mountain represent the final world superpower, which is the kingdom of God, which he will set up during the times of those kings. So basically what you have in Daniel chapter 2 is a skeletal outline of world history starting from the time of Daniel, several hundred years before Jesus arrives, all the way to the second coming of Jesus and his established kingdom. Is that clear? Okay? And he says, over that time, basically what you see, starts with Babylon, then he goes to Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, then divided Rome, and it was during that time, the divisions of Rome, that Jesus would come and set up his kingdom. That's what you get in Daniel chapter 2. Now we go to Daniel chapter 7. By the way, in our worksheet here, let's get our fill in the blanks, just in case you want to keep up. In Daniel chapter 2, We found the following. How many successive empires? Four. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Christ's eternal kingdom was established, and the interpretation emphasizes the time of the feet and toes. The feet and toes, the bottom end of the statue. Now, that's what Daniel had in his head. Then we turn just a few pages to the right to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 builds on Daniel chapter 2. So it's important to have that sequence of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then Rome divided, and then Jesus comes. That sequence in our heads as we go into the rest of the book of Daniel and building into the book of Revelation. 
Daniel chapter 7, a dream is given. We'll just pick it up in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, notice that Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king of Babylon. He has passed away at this point. But now the dream goes directly to Daniel. Without having to be the interpreter of someone else's dream, the vision goes directly to him. Okay? It says here, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the what? The main facts. I'm sure there's more that he could write down, but the, this is the sum and substance. This is the heart of the matter. Daniel spoke in verse 2, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great what? See. So what's the very first thing he sees in his vision? He sees a sea. In what kind of condition is it in? It's roaring. It's churning. It's being stirred up by the winds, right? He said, behold, I look, and there's this great sea all churning by the wind. Now verse 3. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, if that's all that we had, you could get the picture that at the exact same time, four beasts side by side popped up out of the water. But that's not what he means, and we know that because we just keep reading. Look at the very next verse. The first was like a lion. Notice there's a sequence. One comes first. And then there's going to be a second, then a third, and then a fourth. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Then, verse 5, and suddenly another beast a second, this one like a what? Bear. The first one was like a what? Lion. The second one is like a bear. It was raised up on what? One side. So one side was stronger than the other, larger than the other. It was raised up on one side. It's kind of a hunchback. And it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. That's beast two. Now go to verse six. And after this I looked, and there was another like a what? A leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads. By the way, clearly these are not normal beasts. You never see a lion with wings and stand up and have a heart transplant. Right? You never see a lopsided bear with three ribs. You never see a leopard with four wings and four heads. Clearly, this is figurative language. He's in a vision. But now it goes on and says, the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Notice the dominion is given to it. So we have a sequence of four powers in a row. Already, without even an interpretation, you can imagine Daniel starting to try to put the pieces together. Hey, I've seen something like this before. One, two, three, four, dominion, dominion, power, power, power. But now it goes on to the fourth. 
After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. Now the first one was like a lion, the second was like a bear, the third one is like a leopard, but this fourth one, it doesn't give us an animal comparable that we can think of. It just says it was terrible, it was exceedingly great, it was, some people call it the nondescript beast, okay? But if we put Daniel together with Revelation, we're going to see that this is a dragon beast, okay? which is not a real beast. Right? It's a fictitious type of thing. Sensational kind of language, trying to talk about the bigness and badness of this fourth kingdom. It, was, it had what kind of teeth? Iron teeth. Have you seen anything that's had iron before? Yes. You've seen iron, not in this vision, but in Daniel chapter 2, the fourth empire was the legs of iron this now has huge iron teeth it was devouring breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had what ten horns then it mentions it having ten horns now if you recall the fourth empire that he saw in daniel chapter two had iron and then divide it into ten toes. Now he sees this terrible, exceedingly strong fourth beast have iron teeth and then have ten horns. You're starting to see some similarities. Okay? But let's let the text speak for itself. Verse 8. Now, if there was a direct parallel to Daniel chapter 2, you would expect to see, okay, Empire 1, Empire 2, Empire 3, Empire 4, then divided into 10 parts, and then you'd expect to see Jesus come, yes? But some new information is given in Daniel chapter 7 that wasn't given in Daniel chapter 2. And let me explain a little something about Bible prophecy right here. Bible prophecy, end-time prophecy in the Bible, has a particular way of going about its explanations. What it will do is give you a picture once, the basic outline. Then it will repeat the same picture, but kind of zoom in on a particular part. And then the next time, it's going to give even more detail within that part, and even more detail. So it's more and more detail. So you get the picture of the general overview in the first one. And you can tell from the first vision that the interpretation will focus on the time of the feet and the toes. And now Daniel sees not four body sections, but he sees four beasts. And here the fourth beast has ten horns, and he's thinking about those ten horns, and this is when new information comes. Watch now closely. Verse 8. I was considering the what? The horns. And there was another horn. A what kind of horn? A little horn. Coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So let me ask you a question. Were the ten horns in place and then the little horn came up? Yes. So notice you have the beast, then you have ten horns, and then you have a little horn come up among the ten horns and it plucks up three of them out of the way. Now watch about this horn. What does he notice? And there in this horn were what? 
eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Notice that this horn, or let's, let's notice what this horn doesn't have. Notice it doesn't have strong arms or strong legs. It doesn't have big teeth. It doesn't have claws. It doesn't have wings. It doesn't have any of those other attributes. It only has two attributes. What are those two attributes? Eyes and a what? What kind of things does it say with its mouth? Pompous, blasphemous, big, arrogant words, right? So notice it says it's a little horn, and it comes up later among the other ten, and the only power it has is a mouth. It has eyes, and what do you do with eyes? You see, you look. And it has a mouth, and it's speaking very pompous things. Now, it doesn't tell us what the actual things were, but apparently it's pompous. It's about itself. I'm great. I'm so exalting, blah, 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 blah. What a strange thing. And Daniel is locked in. It's like you can imagine him looking at these horns, and all of a sudden he said, look at that little thing. Look at it. Oh. Well, look at that. It's plucking up one, two, three. And he looks close. It's got eyes. It's got a mouth. And he listens closely. What's it saying? Pompous words. That must have been a fascinating vision. But now his focus is interrupted once again. Watch now, verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. So you have a throne. The Ancient of Days comes in, takes his seat, Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands are ministering before him, their witnesses, and they bring in the books, and the books are opened. The court is seated, the books are opened. What is this a picture of? This is a courtroom scene, is it not? You have the great judge of all the universe there. You have the books that he's reviewing. All the jurists are there. And there's a judgment scene, a courtroom scene, that interrupts his gaze at the little horn. But then watch out. Something gets his attention back. It snaps him back. Look at verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the little horn was speaking. So he's watching the sequence of beasts and he's focused on this little horn and then all of a sudden his, he gets the big picture of a judgment scene in heaven, a courtroom scene where God himself takes his seat. Tens of thousands of angels are there. The books are open. The court is seated. And then he hears those pompous little words again. He looks out, sure enough, that little horn just keeps going. He said, I watched. He keeps watching this. Till the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Notice that the thing that's going to destroy it is the burning flames. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And you think, aha, here it is, the second coming of Jesus. But watch where he's going to. Coming with the clouds of heaven, 
he came to where? The Ancient of Days. Well, where's the Ancient of Days? We've already seen him. He's in his courtroom. So here we have Christ being taken into the courtroom. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Well, that's kind of like we saw in Daniel chapter 2. It ends with Jesus' second coming, and you see his kingdom being the final world superpower and his being the one which shall not be destroyed. So you have the same type of bookends, but now look at our chart here. On the right, we've compared Daniel chapter 7 to Daniel chapter 2. You see Babylon. You see Medo-Persia, which is interesting. In Daniel chapter 2, Medo-Persia had two parts as well, a left hand and a right hand. And most people have one hand dominant. Are there any lefties in here, by the way? All right, amen. Me too. I'm with you. I'm with you. I understand your lot in life as a, as a, as a you know, subset of the rest of the world you look down on, but rise up, be proud. But here, you know, the Bible, the right hand is always strong, and sometime I'll talk with the Lord about that. But anyway, in Daniel chapter 2, the head is made of gold, and it represents Babylon. Then you have the two-parted kingdom, the Medes and the Persians working together to form a single empire, but one becomes more dominant than the other. Now, it's interesting, if you look through the history, the first king on the throne was a Mede, but the Persians took over and became the dominant empire. Persians and But they came together to defeat Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire. Then you had Greece. Then you had Rome. Then you had Rome divided into the, what we know now as Western Europe today. And then Jesus returns. You see the same sequence in Daniel chapter 7. Babylon is now represented as a lion. Medo-Persia is that lopsided bear, stronger on one side than the other. Greece is the four-winged and four-headed leopard. The terrible beast or the dragon beast is Rome. And at the end, we, it bo- they both end with Christ's kingdom being set up. But in Daniel chapter 7, you get two new pieces of information that were not covered in Daniel chapter 2. And they just happen to take place in the time of the feet and the toes, which is where the emphasis was in Daniel chapter 2. Now we get more information about that time period in Daniel chapter 7. So we go back here to our lesson. In Daniel chapter 7, we find the following. How many successive empires? Four. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But then we have two new pieces of information. The first thing we're exposed to is the little horn power. With eyes and a mouth that speak pompous words. There is no mention of that in Daniel chapter 2. No hint of it. Also, we have this judgment scene he's shown in heaven before Jesus comes. And then it closes with Christ's eternal kingdom established. And again, the interpretation emphasizes, well, let's go to the emphasis. Let's make sure we see it in Scripture. Because so far, all we've read is the vision itself. What does the angel tell Daniel that it all means? Go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 15. 
I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body. And the visions of my head, what? Troubled me. If you are getting a headache from trying to understand this right now, you're with Daniel. (laughs) He didn't get it at first either. No problem. I came near, verse 16, to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. He said, what did I just see? What does it mean? And notice the interpretation. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great, those great beasts, which are how many? Four, are four what? Kings which arise out of the earth. So are they literal beasts with wings and teeth and all this kind of... No, no, no. These are representations of four real powers, four real kingdoms on the earth. Yes? Same thing we saw in Daniel chapter 2. We're up to speed so far. But, notice what he says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, let's think about this critically. Daniel chapter 2, he knew there were four successive kingdoms, and it would end with Jesus setting up the real kingdom that will never pass away, the kingdom of God. That's what he knew in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 7, he sees four beasts. He knows they're parallel. It ends with the second coming when God's people would have a kingdom, right? But it's got two new pieces of information. He asks, what does it all mean? And the angel gives him two sentences. He says, those four beasts are four kingdoms. Daniel's like, yeah, yeah, good, good, good. And at the very end, the saints will have the kingdom of God. Don't worry. Now think about it from Daniel's perspective. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All that stuff I already knew. Yeah? I didn't need a new vision to tell me that. I already had that in Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel, I'm sure in a very kind, Christ-like way, but kind of dialogues, let's say, with the angel. Look at verse 21. Oh, I'm sorry. I was in, uh, my page just flipped over. I'm sorry. Verse 19 of Daniel chapter 7. Then I wish to know the truth about what? The fourth beast. Does he care about the first, second, or third beast? None whatsoever. Same thing we saw in Daniel chapter 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Head of gold, chest of blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about the iron and then on. But does he just want to know about the fourth beast in general? Is there something specific about it he's interested in? Watch this now. Again, verse 19. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue of his feet. But he's not done. Verse 20. And the ten horns that were on its head. So he's like, I want to know the beast, but also about those ten horns, but he's still not done. And the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. He said, yes, I want to know about the fourth beast, and yes, I want to know about the ten horns, but his real issue is with what power? The little horn. Who is that? And why was he so interested in this little horn? Well, he tells us right now. Look at verse 21. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against whom? The saints. And what? Prevailing against them. He was winning. 
Now, if you recall, Daniel chapter 2, I mean, Daniel grew up in Jerusalem. And he got carted off to Babylon. And then Babylon's going to get taken over by Medo-Persia. And the Medo-Persia is going to get taken over by Greece. Greece is going to get taken over by Rome. Rome's going to be divided and can't get their stuff together. And then Jesus comes. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel didn't lose a night's sleep. He didn't lose a wink. He didn't get a headache. He didn't care. It's political power after political power. This kingdom, then this kingdom, then this kingdom, this kingdom. Fine, Jesus is finally going to come. It's not a big deal. And I would imagine the same is true here. Remember, he doesn't care about the first, second, or third kingdom. He wants to know about the fourth one and the ten horns, but specifically the little horn. And why? Because he's making war against whom? The saints. Friends, this isn't just another political power. This is a spiritual power. Its targets are not just you know, geography or military or politics, its target is God and his people. He says, that's what I want to know about. Look again in our text. Notice again verse 21. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until what happened? Until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So notice the thing. He's like, I was watching the little horn, and it was making war against the saints. And that's why God had to have a judgment to judge the little horn and finally put an end to all of its shenanigans. And then the kingdom, time will come for Christ's kingdom to be established. It ends the same way that Daniel 2 ends, but it adds this little horn and judgment scene to the time of the feet and the toes, or the time of the ten horns. Are you all still with me? All right. So this is what he wants to know. Here's the answer given. Verse 23. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth, what? Kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms. Something about it. He keeps repeating, this is not just another military or political kingdom. Something about this one is different. He shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Now verse 24. The ten horns are ten what? Kings, which shall arise from this kingdom. We're still in the kingdom of Rome, yes? But now it's in its divided state. Notice it's got a, a state where it's the solid empire of Rome. Then it's divided into ten parts. In Daniel 2, it's represented by ten toes. In Daniel chapter 7, it's ten horns, but it's still an extension of this kingdom. And another shall rise when? After them. So notice, we've got a third phase of Rome now. Watch carefully. Rome as a singular empire. Then Rome divided into ten horns. Then Rome, as a little horn, still coming out of the same beast, yes? Still Rome. And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones. This is where the difference comes in. Remember, it talks about, oh, it's going to be different. It's going to be different. This is what makes a difference. Something about this little horn. And he's going to do what? He already said he's going to make war against whom? The saints. It's going to be a spiritual power. 
and shall subdue three kings. Verse 25, what's he going to do? He, now speaking of this little horn, he shall speak pompous words. Now before it just said he had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. But what kind of pompous words are they? Pompous words against whom? The Most High. Who's his target? God. You know, all the other kingdoms, they go north, south, east, and west, and they cover the face of the earth, but this one's headed up. Its target is God himself. Shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And shall intend to change what two things? Times and laws. Again, the inference is times and laws of whom? God. This is a spiritual power, different from all the other ones. And notice what happened. Then the saints shall be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. So times singular, one, times plural, two, and then a half a time. So one plus two and a half gives you three and a half times. which we could do a study of in the book of Daniel here, in times means years. But we'll come back to that in just a minute. So there's this period of time where this little horn will have apparently free reign over the people of God, persecuting the saints of God, blaspheming or making pompous words against the Most High, trying to change the very times and laws of God. For this, whatever this period of time is, for three and a half times, whatever that means, it's the little horn's time to run amok. But, verse 26, but the what shall be seated? The court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion. So after you see this time where the little horn does its rampage, what's the thing that brings it to an end? The court. The court seats to reflect on its crimes. To consume and destroy it forever. Then, notice the sequence, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Same sequence of Daniel 2, except now we have the added detail of the activities of the little horn, and the judgment in heaven to destroy the little horn. And then God's kingdom will be established. Are you with me so far? Okay, that was a muddled response. Why not are you giving nods anymore? Just blank stares, okay? Let's quickly review. Daniel 2, he sees how many empires? Four. Can you name them with me? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, then divided Rome, then Jesus comes. Daniel chapter 7, same sequence. This time instead of a statue with different body segments, he sees a sequence of four beasts. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and the terrible beast. Once again representing Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Now watch it. Rome starts as a beast, but then it divides into divided Rome. Then you have little horn Rome. Then you have the judgment in heaven. 
and then Jesus comes. Same sequence, you just had added information down in the time of the ten toes of the ten horns. Down at the very end of time, you have extra information in Daniel 7 than you did in Daniel 2. Now are we all together? Okay. Praise the Lord. Let's turn over to the other side. We've already gone ahead for part of the other side. You'll be relieved to know. (laughs) Again, Daniel chapter 7, verse 17 and 18. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. This answer did not satisfy Daniel. It merely repeated everything he already knew. So if Daniel wasn't persistent in saying, no, 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 slow down. I want to know specifically about the ten horns, about the little horn, about the judgment scene. You left a lot of stuff out there in that interpretation. Daniel persisted. Daniel was specifically interested in what power? The little horn. That's his focus. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 tells us why. He shall speak, that's your blank there, pompous words against whom? Most high. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to what? Change times and law. Then the saint shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now before we get into this time, times, and half a time business, which I believe the Bible makes explicitly clear what that is, I want to bring your attention to something we saw last night. It's not in your notes here, but it's in your previous night's note. It's in 2 Thessalonians, where our home base was last night. Notice there's 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, when the Apostle Paul was talking about this man of sin, the son of perdition, who I believe is a little horn power, or the Antichrist who John talks about, or the beast of Revelation, they're all the same, same power, just different uh, wording given to their name, right? Different aliases. Now recall, his counsel here. Chapter 2 and verse 1 of Second Thessalonians. Now, brethren, concerning the what? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did Paul believe Jesus was going to come again? Yes. Did he believe it was ready right then? No. And he explains why. And our gathering together to him, we ask you, verse 2, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So believe it's coming, but don't think it has come. Why? Verse 3, let no one do what? Deceive you? By any means, for that day will not come unless the what happens first? The falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself. Does it sound like the activities of the little horn so far? Yes. Above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the where? Temple of God. And if you were here last night, what does Paul mean when he employs the term temple of God? Church. 
showing himself that he is whom? God. Paul said, yes, the coming of Jesus is going to happen, but first some things have to occur. Where do you think the Apostle Paul got this concept? Is it possible, my friends, that the Apostle Paul was familiar with Scripture that God had already given? That he had studied the prophets? Absolutely. He says, sure, we know Jesus is coming, no doubt about it. But we're not there yet because the stuff he said had to come before has not happened yet. Now notice verse 5. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? Apparently he's already given a seminar on this very topic. This is just a reminder letter. Now verse 6. And now you know what is restraining. That he... Here he's talking about the man of sin or the son of perdition, the antichrist power, the little horn, all the same thing, that he may be revealed in his own what? Did the apostle Paul believe there was a time that the little horn would come into its own and be powerful and be revealed? Yes. Does that harmonize with what we saw in Daniel chapter 7? Yes. That there's a sequence. It would go Rome, and then it divided Rome, Still all political, right? But then a spiritual power would come out of Rome. A little horn with eyes speaking pompous words against the Most High, trying to change the times and laws of God, and trying to persecute the people of God for a time, times, and half a time. It's a time prophecy. The Apostle Paul says, of course it's not happening yet. There's a time in God's calendar when this will occur. He goes on to say in verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is what? Already at work. He says, now it doesn't have a full form. It doesn't, it's clearly seen. But it's going to be ready. When the time is ready, it'll be in place. It's already stirring right now. You remember the Apostle John said the same thing? The spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. Something's churning out here. He said, but something's restraining that from developing. But at just the right time, it will occur. So don't think Jesus is coming now because these prophetic events have yet to manifest. Are we clear? Let's continue. Still in 2 Thessalonians 2. Okay. Well, we're going to get to that, brother. Oh, we're not just going to leave the time dangling there. I know exactly what you're talking about, and we're going to be talking about it right here. Promise it's coming. It's coming. But it's a good question. It's a good question. He says, when is that time? Are we in it now? Let's talk about it. Continuing 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 7 still. It's already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So apparently there's a counterforce restraining its development. But when that's taken out of the way, it'll open the floodgates for the little horn to rise up. Now notice this is verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his what? Coming. So the little horn, whenever it develops, is going to stay in play in the world history until the coming of Jesus. This, according to the Apostle Paul, harmonizes perfectly with what Daniel was shown because it's coming from the same source. Now let's go back to this time period question. What does this mean, time, times, and half a time? When is it? What does it mean? 
Well, I'm going to give you one of the keys of Revelation, one of the key ideas, one of the main concepts that will help you understand all Bible time prophecies of the end time events. This one helpful key, and it's so simple, you might just fly right past it, but here it is. In Bible prophecy, a prophetic day in reality is a year. One prophetic day equals one literal year. Now, am I just making that up, hoping it works out nicely, or does the Bible actually teach us this? Well, I hope you know by now the answer is the Bible teaches us this, okay? Right there in your, in your worksheet, your study guide, you see Numbers chapter 14, page, uh, chapter 14, verse 34. Numbers chapter 14. It's appropriate that this would be in the book of Numbers, okay? That's going to be page 140 in your pew Bible, Numbers chapter 14. We're going to be landing on verse 34. Now, to give you a little context of what this background is, the children of Israel are right on the borders of the promised land. They're ready to go in. But instead of by faith just picking up tents and going where the Lord tells them to go, they say, you know what we should do first? Let's send in some spies to make sure it's okay. And they send in, does anybody know how many spies? Twelve spies. And they go into the land of Canaan. Oh, and it's beautiful. The produce is huge, and the green and the trees, everything is wonderful. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's everything God promised to be, but it wasn't vacant. They also noticed that just proportionally as large as the food are the people who cultivate the food and eat the food, right? And the Bible says that they looked at them and they said, we look like what? Grasshoppers. We will be stomped out if we go in there. God wants us to go in there? When they come back from their spying adventure for just over a month, in fact, exactly 40 days, 10 of those 12 spies say, yeah, it's beautiful, but we can't do it. We need to go back to Egypt. Now, two of those spies, Caleb and Joshua, said, I don't know who you fight for, but we fight for the Lord, and if he says, take it, we're going to take it. Well, who do the children of Israel prefer, the two or the 10? The 10. And they decide to turn back, and they wail and lament, and they write on the borders of the promised land, they fizzle out. Do you think the Lord was pleased with their decision not to go into the promised land? Of course not. This is the Lord's response to that decision. Numbers chapter 14. Now, let's start with verse 26. I want to tell this story clearly. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, said the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. By the way, what they were saying is, Oh, why did we come out here? We're just going to die in the wilderness. And he's like, You said it. Verse 29. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. Except for whom? Caleb and Joshua. 
sons of, you know, names we can't spit around. <laughs> you shall by no means in the land which I swore I would make you to dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. By the way, this is a principle. God takes our decisions seriously. He's not going to trump your decision. I'll respect your decision, even if it's a bad one. I'll let you do. Some of the, some of the, sometimes the cruelest thing God can do for us is to give us what we want. Notice what he says. But as for you, verse 32, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness. How long? 40. Now, why did he pick 40 years? Did he just arbitrarily make up that number? No. He says why. Just keep reading. For 40 years, and, be, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. Verse 34 is the key according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one what? Year. Namely, 40 years you shall know my rejection. So he said that little exploratory 40 days just became a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled in a literal 40 years. Each day will be a year to you. So this little thing, this microcosm of the bigger thing, the day equals a literal year. The Lord does this again. Go to the book of Ezekiel. Just before the book of Daniel, if you found Daniel, just go back to the left one book. Ezekiel chapter 4, page 804. Again, the children of God have been disobedient. This is a much longer time after that. But there's the same spirit. You know, people are people no matter when they live. And here, the prophet Ezekiel is given a strange command from the Lord. Now, Ezekiel had, the Lord has tried to communicate to his people in so many ways, they just don't listen. But Ezekiel was supposed to literally set up some little uh, uh, stick figures and little dolls in the dirt, in the sand, and recreate the children of Israel and their land. And then he was supposed to lay on his side for a certain number of days as a prophecy about the exile and destruction of that land that he was looking at in figure. And that sounds a little bit odd, but this is exactly what the Lord tells him. Now, we're going to Ezekiel chapter 4, and we'll start with verse 4. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. Of course, at this time, there's two uh, divisions in the children of Israel. There's Israel and there's Judah. But notice this. Lie on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days. So you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So they're going to bear their iniquity 390 literal years. So I want you to lay on your side for 390 literal days. Uh, prophetic days, if you will. So his activity was to be a prophecy of their coming destruction. Now think about it, this is just over a year. Every day he's supposed to go in, lay on his left side, it's like, that's another year. <laughs> Next day he comes out, another year. He said, do this 390 times. And that's a prophecy of what's going to happen to them. Now he turns to Judah. 
does the same thing. Verse 6, And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. And here's the principle again. I have laid on you a day for each what? Here. When God wants to give a prophecy about his people and their difficulties coming, he uses this principle of a day equals a literal year. Have we made that clear so far from Scripture? Okay. Now let's apply it back to, in fact, by, by, by the way, let's think about this. And you have it in your worksheet there, but what I just told you, this little principle of a day equals a year is the magic decoder ring for all time prophecies in the Bible. All in time, big picture time prophecies use this day for a year principle. So for instance, I could give you a quiz now. If there was a prophecy of one day, you'd know in reality it would last how long? One year. Let's, let's up the ante a little bit. What if the prophecy wasn't for one day? What if it was for a few days? What if it was for seven days? How long would it be? So for instance, if you saw, if you saw a prophetic week, it would lead equal a literal seven years. Yes? Because a week is just a collection of seven days. Now, what if you saw a prophecy for one month? 30, right? So a prophecy of one month equals 30 literal years. Now, if there's how many months are there in a year? 12. So 12 times 30 is 360, not 365 like we have now, but 360, just to keep it simple, right? 360 So if you see a prophecy of one year, that's going to turn into 360 literal years. Are we on the same page so far? You just now have the key in your hand to unlocking Bible time prophecy. It's that simple. A prophetic day equals a literal year. Now let's go back to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. Speaking again of this little horn or this antichrist power, it says he shall speak pompous words against whom? The Most High. Shall persecute the saints of whom? The Most High. Shall intend to change times and law? Then the saints shall be given into his hand, not forever, but for a certain amount of time. For time, times, and half a time, or three and a half times, or three and a half prophetic years, okay? 3.5 prophetic years. Now, right now, the math is going to get a little tough on you, right? 360 is one year, yes? So you have one year at 360. Then you have two more years, and 360 times two is 720. Then you have a half a year at 180, So if you were to line up a 360 plus a 720 plus a 180, you'd come up with this one figure, 1,260 days or 1,260 literal years. Now you say, that's a little convoluted, that's a little bit random, that's a little bit arbitrary, but actually, believe it or not, this 1,260 days or 1,260 literal years is the most frequently repeated time prophecy in all the Bible. It's not just repeated once or twice or three or four or five times. Many times you see it in the Bible. Look at, look at our worksheet, our study guide here. List them out for you. 
And I want you to see them in your Bible, too. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, we just saw, time, times, and half a time, which when you do the math, 1,260 years. You go to Daniel chapter 12, later in the same book of Daniel, in verse 7. Notice he talks about that same thing. Verse 7 of Daniel chapter 12, we read this. Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever that it shall be for a time, times, and a half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. So again, notice time, times, and half a time for persecuting the people of God. Now let's go to the book of Revelation. That's what our whole seminar is about, the keys of Revelation. And you'll notice that this particular time prophecy is repeated more in Revelation than it is in Daniel. But it's the same amount of time. And you'll see for yourself, with the decoder ring that we've just given you, the decoding message of a day equals a year, you'll see it for yourself. Revelation chapter 11, we're going to go to verse 2. Now, you don't have to understand all the context around this, but I want you to notice the time prophecy, and you'll see clearly we're talking, whatever it's talking about, it's talking about the same thing. Revelation 11, verse 2. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for... Now, you wait a minute. That does not say time, times, and half a time. It doesn't say 1,260 days. It says 42 what? Well, 42, somebody have your calculator, and maybe you just used to be good at math, like we all used to, hopefully. 40, 42 months, right, times 30 equals what? 1,200, and some of you are just guessing, but yes, you, you got it right. It just happens to be identically the same thing. 42 months, 42 times 30 gets you to 1,260 literal years. Look at it again, Revelation, this time, chapter 11, verse 3, repeats it. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260, what? Days, which equals 1,260 years. Same time period again. Let's go to chapter 12, turn over one page. We've been in chapter 12 several times now, and we're back again. Chapter 12 in verse 6 this time. And again, all we're looking at is the time prophecies, and we'll see that it's talking about the same time period. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Still in chapter 12, let's go to verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time. And let's go to chapter 13. Let's look for one more example of this. Chapter 13, verse 5. And tell me if this doesn't sound exactly like Daniel's little horn. We'll be coming back to Revelation 13. You beware. But Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13 fit hand and glove together. Notice verse 5. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Who does that sound like? The little horn, right? And he was given authority to continue for how long? 42 months or 1,260 years. Literal time. 
Daniel 7, Daniel 12, 1,260 years. Revelation 11, Revelation 12, Revelation 13, multiple times the same time prophecy. Sometimes it's 1,260 days. Sometimes it's time, times, and half a time, or three and a half years. Sometimes it's 42 months, but when you add it all up, it comes out to the exact same number, 1,260 literal years. Did the Apostle Paul know that there was a time for the man of sin, the son of perdition, to come into his own? Absolutely. There's a starting point and an ending point. There's a definitive time period in which this would happen. Now, let's put all of the pieces together. From the accumulated evidence of our last two studies, we can see that the Antichrist power would, first of all, It would be the culmination of an influence already at work in Christianity during the time of imperial Rome. By the way, just to make sure we're on the same page, who was in power during the time when Paul was writing and John was writing the book of Revelation? It was Rome. But was it a religious Rome or was it a secular Rome? Was it a civil Rome? It was a secular Rome, right? You know, the enemies of Jesus were the church, right? They had to appeal to the power of the state, but Rome didn't really care. They just wanted to keep the Jews happy, right? They didn't really have skin in this game. But the empire was Rome. In fact, when Jesus was asked about taxes, he said, let me see a coin. And he said, whose picture is on there? And he didn't say Alexander the Great, because <laughs> it wasn't the time of the Greeks. And he didn't say Nebuchadnezzar, because it wasn't the time of Babylon. Whose picture was on the coin? Caesar. And Caesar was the head of what? Rome. So that early power was during Rome. And Paul says, imperial Rome is in place right now, but it's already stirring even now. But it would rise, this Antichrist power would rise after the division of Rome into ten tribal kingdoms, which today we call Western Europe. Because remember there was the beast, and then the beast with ten horns, and the little horn would rise up after they were already established, right? Come on now, we're going to wait for it. (laughs) By the way, in all seriousness, do you have question and answers? Put them in the question and answer box. We'll come back to them, I promise. No problem. What's that? Oh, I know they do, and I think that's adorable and sweet. (laughs) I know you are. That is is, is very precious of you. I'm very happy to hear that you're so hungry. Please put it in the box, and we'll feed you tomorrow. All right. But notice this, right. The culmination of something that's already at work, number one. It would rise after the division of Rome into the ten tribal kingdoms, which today we call the powers of Western Rome, or Western Europe. It would be a notably what kind of kingdom? Small. It keeps calling. You'll see this in Revelation. It calls them this little horn. Daniel calls them the little horn. He doesn't have big arms. It doesn't have legs. It doesn't have feet. He doesn't have teeth. It only has two attributes. What are those attributes? Eyes and a mouth. What kind of things does he talk about? Himself. (laughs) Pompous words. Against the most high, right? But it would be a notably small power, small kingdom within the geographic territory of Europe. Because notice it came up after the ten horns and it also came up among the ten horns, okay? It has a vocal and self-aggrandizing leader, right? The eyes of a man, the mouth that speaks pompous words. It would have no military force of its own. 
Nowhere in Daniel or Revelation do you ever see it having its own empire to rule in an army that can go charging this way or that. It's always riding on the back of a beast. It's not a beast itself. It's just a power that extends from one. Making sense? It would be revealed or come to power at a specific time and remain dominant exactly 1,260 years. It would think to change the times and laws and persecute the saints of whom? Most High. So it's a religious persecuting power. It comes out of Rome, and it would be in existence until the return of Jesus when Paul says it would be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. Now, friends, let's put this together. How many religious powers have come out of Rome after the ten that divided Roman Empire? It's been a spiritual power that's had a self-aggrandizing central leader that had a time of persecution of God's people for 1,260 years, but is still in power now before Jesus comes. Friends, there are only so many options. You can want it to be China if you want, but it doesn't fit the picture. You can want it to be North Korea. You can want it to be some military power. You can want it to be some politician. And trust me, I've seen those go around, right? As soon as somebody evil, oh, that's the Antichrist. But friends, it has to match up to the Bible's picture, amen? Bible prophecy eliminates all other options. Only one power in human history fits the biblical criteria for being the Antichrist power. And that is the Roman Catholic papacy. Now, did I say Roman Catholics? No. But the religious structure, the system itself, and its hierarchical leadership has over the years persecuted God's people, specifically, by the way, when the imperial power of Rome fell apart... And in that power vacuum, power was given to the Pope. And he was given not just religious authority, but also civil authority. So that anyone who was an enemy of the church just became an enemy of the states. And they could execute the law as they saw fit. By the way, we call that time period now, even in secular history, what do we call that time period? The Dark Ages. The Bible is removed from people's hands. Power was consolidated to the priests and the the higher-ups. The Pope could do what he wanted. To kings, even. All of Western Europe, the then-known powerful world, was under the thumb of this persecuting power for 1,260 years. But something happened in the year 1798. In 1798, Europe... By the way, there was a Protestant Reformation during the middle of that power, don't think for a moment that God's going to squish out all of his representatives. He's going to keep a faithful few. And they were speaking out. By the way, what we've discovered tonight is nothing new. If Martin Luther were able to be here with us, ask him, hey, Martin Luther, who's the Antichrist? You know who he'd say? Roman Catholic papacy. Ask John Calvin, who would he say? Roman Catholic papacy. John Knox, what do you think? Roman Catholic papacy. Uh, The Wesley brothers, got any thoughts? Roman Catholic papacy. Sir Isaac Newton, any thoughts? Roman Catholic papacy. You can go down the reformer list. Wycliffe, Huss, Jerome. Every Protestant reformer you can think of. 
There was a reason they were called Protestants. They were protesting the abuses of power done in the name of Christ by someone who sat in the temple of God claiming to be God. But during this time, God was protecting his people. And at the close of that time, a judgment would begin in heaven. I believe we're living in the time when that judgment is ongoing, when those 1,260 years have occurred, history is clear that that has happened for exactly 1,260 years. Fascinating. Begins in 538 A.D., closes in 1798 A.D. on point. Now we're living this time just before Jesus comes. We've seen that the book of Revelation culminates with the second coming of Jesus. That's the whole purpose of writing, the revelation of Jesus Christ, because the time is near. We've seen the signs of Christ's coming are all around us. Now we've looked at the timing throughout Bible prophecy, and here we stand. Friends, the Bible paints a very clear and consistent picture of who Jesus Christ is and who the Antichrist is. And the question we're going to have is, are we going to be deceived, or are we going to stand for truth as God's Word says and be on the side of Jesus Christ, or are we going to be deceived into the tricks of the Antichrist? Now, I know. I want you to hear this. I absolutely love every single person on this side of the earth. Amen? Catholic, Protestant, Hindu, Buddhist, fine. My point tonight is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he gives us an opportunity to know these truths so that we will not be deceived, but so we can walk hand in hand with him. This is a message for everyone And we all need to know it because it's in God's Word. Now, if you have questions from tonight, which apparently we have a couple, that's no problem. Please put them in the question and answer. We're going to have some interesting question and answers perhaps after this. But it's no problem at all. But I want you to go home, take the last two lessons, look up every passage, review everything, get the CDs, and double check. Be good Bereans. Take home and see if what we're saying is true. Is it actually in God's Word? And if it is, what do we do about it? Are we going to stand on God's truth or are we going to leave, leave ourselves untethered to drift in the wiles of the, of the deceiver? I, for one, don't want to be deceived. How about you? Let me ask you a question and be honest tonight. Was tonight's message clear? Okay, good, good, good. If you caved to peer pressure, I appreciate it. But if it wasn't, that's okay too. But more than clear, I hope that it was informative. I hope that you see that it's built on Scripture, and I hope that you see that Jesus wants us to know the truth so that we won't be deceived. The choice is ours. People who are deceived don't know it, but now that God has given us his word, he says, now, what do you do? Are you going to walk in it? I'm going to leave that burden on your heart. Tomorrow night, I believe our message is entitled, this is an interesting title, Blood in God's Tent. We're going to start looking at what is this time of judgment that was referred to in Daniel chapter 7. What, what are we living in now? If that's the time we're in, what does that even mean? We're going to come back and begin studying it tomorrow night. But I hope you'll join us. I hope you bring a friend. Thank you for your patience. Let's bow our heads for a word of closing prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and we look forward to his soon coming. 
But as we study Bible prophecy, we also see that there's an antichrist power and that the Satan will work through deceptive means to trick and betray and to change even the very law of God if it were possible. But Lord, we want to be faithful. We don't want to be deceived. We want to take heed and watch out that no one deceives us. So Lord, help us to stick close to Jesus Christ. Help us to study his word. Help us be faithful to what is there and help us to lead others in the way of salvation. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.